This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Sports reporters assemble! Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. <laughs> um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I, hate, I already hate it. I hate it. Okay, the sports reporters, they're assembling. You heard it up there in the Northeast. Bob Silverman of the Daily Beast. Bob, good afternoon, sir. How are you? I'm doing good. How are you doing, man? I am I'm quite swell. The weather is not crazy down here in Knoxville. Um, I found my retainer after two weeks thinking that it was gone and my teeth were starting to move and I was losing it and very upset about it. But thankfully, Bob... The retainer it 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 surfaced under my car, so that uh, well, that that's clearly where it always was. Yes, exactly. Do you wear a retainer? Normal, Bob? normal stuff. No, no, not right now. No. Okay, okay. Do you wear a night guard? No, 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 no night guard. All right, the more you know. Um, up there in the northwest, Andrew Hammond of the Tacoma News Tribune. Andrew, good morning on your end. How are you? Uh, pretty fucking shitty, but other than that, it's Friday. Um, I've been dealing with uh, plumber issues and water leaks for the last, uh, I'd say, forty-eight hours. So, mm. oh, um, right, yeah. I am. I am. Um, r- real brief. Um, the the water issue started yesterday. Um, called the landlord. Said, "Hey, um, this is the problem that's going on." He says. All right, cool. I'm going to bring a guy out there hopefully this afternoon. Awesome. So I go to the store, come back. The guy's here. He's under the sink. He's looking at it. I don't see any problems with it. I'm just over here like, okay, I just had to clean up water for like uh, 45 minutes to an hour this morning. What do you mean you don't see a problem? And then he just kind of offhandedly says, yeah, I'm primarily kind of the roofing guy. uh, But I do some handy uh, man stuff every now and then. Like, wait a minute. You're an expert in roofs, and you were brought out to look at plumbing. Mm. Awesome. Um, so, yeah, uh, basically same second verse, same as the first today. Uh, water issues in the kitchen. Uh, thankfully, it's just in the kitchen. Um, yeah, so. Just be careful of water. Are you on the first floor or are you on the top floor? Um, floor? I'm uh, the the water is on the first floor, which is good. Um, I'm on the yeah. second floor, um, which is you know I because I, I live upstairs. But yeah, it's just kind of like dog. What the <laughs> hell? Um, be, but no, I, I yeah. Be very careful of like water damage to the floor below. That shit. It can be incredibly expensive. And yeah, yeah, and I think that's what my landlord my landlord is trying to avoid. But I'm just like, buddy. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, you can't, 
you can't Ohio State your way out of this. Mm, topical reference. I like it. I know. You're welcome. Um, but other than that, everything's fine. I have my coffee, and I'm looking at Baby Yoda uh, for so I can zen the fuck out. So, yeah. Missed you guys. Damn, Andrew. That's that's rough. But it, do you think it will be resolved soon at the very least? Do you um, think- yeah, they're bringing out a plumber, an actual plumber. Um, uh, that's good. Yeah, tomorrow. So okay. uh, basically, we don't touch the water. And I mean, I drink spring water anyway. I use spring water for everything else. So I've got like plenty of like spring water. So I sound like a pretentious, you know, no. dick, but you know, I get, I got that is spring water. <laughs> I get very, I like whenever there's a plumbing issue and there's like a light uh, issue in my bathroom sink with the, with the, um, with the drain stopper, like it won't go back down. And it's very upsetting to me. It sounds a problem because I don't want to plug the sink for any reason in the bathroom. But, like, the fact that I can't fix that myself immediately is upsetting to me. I find it irksome. I'm like, I should have amassed the skills to be able to fix this. And watching videos on the Internet is no help at all. It really isn't. It very you know, much is the Simpsons, now Barge, the lab kind of thing. Right. Well, and it's it's... <laughs> Like there, there are some stuff that I can fix. I'm pretty handy anyway. But you know, there's some stuff that like that's like out of my control. And I'm one of those people. If I can't figure out how to fix it, I'll definitely, you know, find the source of the problem. All that. And so it's like I found the source of the problem. Found you know, found the issue. And for the roofing guy to tell me that there's nothing wrong, and then he actually says, "Oh yeah, I just I primarily work on on roofs and stuff." And I'm just like, dog. And I, and I wanted to say this, like, dog, get out. Just just go. Just just go. <laughs> Let's talk sports. I like it. Well, we're actually not going to talk sports just yet, guys. We are, we are okay. not going to talk sports just yet because you guys gave me a homework assignment. Do you remember what the homework assignment was? Three pages of multivariable calculus. <laughs> no, I never uh I never did the calculus stuff. I, I avoided that. I like stat, but I calculus was um I hated stats and calculus. Really? It's so stupid. Stat was like the only <laughs> math that I actually liked. I like I'm a sports writer. I hate math. I mean, I don't like math either, but I did like calcul or I did like statistics. I don't know why. That one made more sense to me. Yeah, I figured I, I took a stats class and I was like, "Yeah, I want uh, I want to figure out ERA. We don't do that in here." Okay, I'm leaving. Well, Let's we're back. Do it. Oh no, oh, we're we're back on this very <laughs> podcast with this person in the background that I do not know whatsoever. It's a yeah. mystery guest. Um, what is your name, mystery guest? Shatanda. Okay, there you go. Um, this That's per- a fake name. That's not a real name. That's uh, not a real person. Oh my god! It sounds real to me. <laughs> no, that's. It is a real name. It is a real name. Um, that's like Will Smith's girlfriend Sharon from the Third Men in Black movie. It's not government real. name. It is my government name. Mm. She sounds pretty forceful about it. I think uh, that I've might never be her- lied. This is I'm also correct. Lied. Also correct. Um. She is here, though, because we watched Dewey Cox last week and um, have not watched it before this. And I'm going to guess that I was more positive than she was because I was laughing out loud a lot during this movie. And Andrew and Bob suggested that I that I watch this film 
before uh, this week's podcast. So that is what we did. Um, I've already forgotten your fake name, but uh, your fake name. What? Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> what, what did you What did you make of the movie last week? Me? Yes, you. Oh, um, okay, okay. Full disclosure. Mm. I wasn't fully paying attention and giving it enough attention, so I watched it again. I watched it again last night so that I could actually speak intelligently about it, and I thought it was a great film. Mm. And I don't use that word lightly. Yes, I did. Very entertaining, a mix of everything, love, sex. I think there was sex, but it was, like, excluded. I don't think I ever actually saw sex, but he had, like, eight kids, (laughs) drugs, very fond of the way that they describe drugs. Um, tragedy. The cutting in half of people has not been incorporated into movies as oftenly as I would like it to be. So that These was are... a great part for me, too. Mm-hmm. I liked it. It is really good. Well, they were hyping up. Did it live up to the hype for you? Yes. Upon the, um, upon the rewatch, yes. Yes, it did. Okay, I didn't know you were going to do a rewatch. That's almost unfair. <laughs> it's a movie you can watch. You can watch multiple times and just turn back on. And and because it is, it does appear on basic cable so often. Although they cut out some of the naughty bits, um, it's it's a quality. Oh, that's on cable. I can watch this now. Did you read so. Ebert's review of this? Didn't he like slam it or something? Didn't he, he call it like garbage? He slammed it, but like the ending line, like just cracked me up because his last line is just about like he was so upset about a dick being in the right, top right corner of a scene and just which is, which is great. Yeah, he hated Love it that. so much. Loved that. Yeah, uh, it was very. What did he, he describe it as? Like very gratuitous or something? Just having this dick That's floating. The point. Yeah. <laughs> point is the gratuity. The point is that there is they, no. There's no reason just to have him talking into some extra schlong like it's a microphone. (laughs) They they don't do frontal nudity enough. And so that was also a highlight for me. So you want to say more dicks? They don't do male frontal nudity enough. Male frontal nudity is a rarity. Unless you're talking about like a Willem Dafoe movie. I don't want to see that. So Andrew's out on more dicks. Willem Dafoe, by the way, biggest weenie in Hollywood. And I, I, I don't mean... didn't want to know that. <laughs> how do you how do you know that, sir? How do you know that? Because I have the internet. Um, Willem Jesus Dafoe, Christ. <laughs> Willem Dafoe has Willem Dafoe has, has probably a twelve inch long. I'm fairly. I... Jesus Christ, what are we doing? I don't believe that, and I'm not going to do it on my work. You can, totally you, you can just, just trust him and move on. Look, Willem Dafoe, okay. before he became oh my God. Loved, beloved, creepy character actor Willem Dafoe, pre-Platoon, and afterwards when his Hollywood career took off, mm-hmm. he was with a very snooty downtown New York theater company called the Worcester Group. And in those plays, it often required full frontal on-stage nudity, meaning if you'd seen this play in the theater, you'd be a good, you know, 10 to 12 feet, depending on what kind of seats you had, away from Willem mm-hmm. Dafoe's massive <laughs> man meat. An eyeful. Okay. 
Okay. Yeah. So if All you right. Google, right. if you want to Google Willem Dafoe nudity plus Worcester group, you will see all of it. It's impressive. This is I, not. I, I, I did. I, is I, that this I week's assignment to look at Will Defoe's schlong? Hell no. That's the follow-up. Okay. Andrew, it, it was extra. It's extra credit. Mm. I'll send you some screenshots. You say you don't need to sell your. I swear to God. <laughs> I swear to God, Bob. If you do this, no. <laughs> I, don't get me down this path of sending extremely rude photographs in the group chat because I've got a folder. Do you? Do it for Christmas. <laughs> Do it for Christmas. Yes, do it for Christmas. Christmas morning. I wake up Christmas morning and I got to see William De, De, Willem Dafoe's Johnson. No, <laughs> that's not season's yes. greetings. Well, which would you like, 100%. Willem Dafoe or a very rude picture of Shrek? Which one? <laughs> I One or the other. I, I regret the phone ever being invented. That's what I mm. choose. Or Teddy that's Bridgewater's fair. media oh, day photo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, in any case, yes. So how did we get here? Oh, yes, the gratuitous nudity. Yes. And walk hard, the, <laughs> the Dewey Cox story. Yeah, that's what makes it great. It's very jarring because you realize that you will see varying degrees of full frontal female nudity in all manner of, mo- of movies for no particular reason than someone wants to throw some boobies in there. And then the <laughs> is jarring because the heteronormative male perspective is called into question immediately. That's what makes that kick ass. Fuck. Did you look away from the screen when it popped up, Chase? What? The dick? Did you? Yeah. You, uh, you were right there. No. I was zooming in. I was like, can we pause? <laughs> let me make sure I, I have this right. Let me, let me see and let me make sure that this is exactly what I was, I was here for because that was the, the big thing for me was not, I mean, that's not a pun, but, uh, yeah, that, that's no. Nope, that was the big thing for you, mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah, bum, bum. I remember you saying that. Yeah, I, yeah. Um, that is that is it. So any uh, any other sports related comments? Because this is a sports podcast, and we're talking about sports by talking oh. about this uh, this very important sports film. Um, what do you think? Anything else before we we move on? I have a question. I have yes. a question. I have a question. I have a question. Okay. Did he die because he took the Viagra? No, he didn't take the Viagra. He just died because he was do old. We, he died because he was Do we know old. that, though? Do we yeah, know that, though? Because he didn't say no to anything else in the whole film, the, and then he died like three months later. Yeah, the turning point is he finally refused the Tim Meadows bathroom drugs for the first time. Do you think if he took the Viagra, he would have lived? He would have died I don't think anyway. So. He died anyway. The point of the point of the point of the rock star biopic is that it goes from birth to death, and so you have to get the death part in. There can't be a like a, a there's no there's no sequel possible to this. Just like you can't do Ray Two or something like that. <laughs> wow! <laughs> right. Ray right. Two <laughs> Motown Boogaloo. Right. Yeah. Exactly. To Ray, to Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what a podcast. I'm really happy about this. Um, all right. Well, that... We recommend it. Uh, by the way, I just stumbled upon an article from, mm. I believe, 2009, um, an interview with the director, Lars von Trier, talking about filming the extremely disturbing, and I cannot recommend this strongly enough, do not see this movie with a date. 
or any kind of romantic evening, uh, the movie Antichrist uh, uh, that he that Lars von Trier made with uh, uh, what's his name Charlotte Gainsbourg and Willem Dafoe, and it's, it's their interview uh, says that they had to have that von Trier had to have a stand-in penis for Willem Dafoe's for the nude scene. And then Lars Trier says, yes, yes, we had to have because Will's own was too big. <laughs> too big to fit in the screen? No, too big because everyone got very confused when they saw it. <laughs> confused? <laughs> Why are you obsessed with Willem Dafoe's dick? I'm not obsessed. I was just doing some Googling so I could get rid of the picture I have to send you as a Christmas present. <laughs> I like how knowledgeable you are on this topic, Bob. I know. I have, and I, I have a, yeah, these are some obscure topics that help me not at all in the real world. So I'm glad I finally get to use it. I, I thank God for that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. Well, it's important. I think you should bring it out on your next date. Or if you're how? married, bring it out right now. No, yeah. We'll just, we'll just concentrate on keeping this squarely in the pocket. Bob, you ever heard of this show called Next? What's it called? It's an MTV show in the early 2000s or mid-2000s. It's called Next. No. Basically, yeah. guys go on a date with a girl, and 100%. the girl can end the date by saying <laughs> Next. I feel like if you talked about Willem Dafoe's dick on Next, you'd probably, um, you probably wouldn't even get off the bus. Yeah, it's, it's you know, there's only, there's like, it's good for podcast conversations, um, dinner parties. Um, but that's about it. Yeah. So, no. First date. Not yes. Do it on a first date. Mm-hmm. I can talk about other, other, other famous Hollywood actors who supposedly had giant dongs, but maybe <laughs> I'll save that. Okay. I want a full write-up report from you on mm-hmm. that. Sure. 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 No. Sure. Okay. okay. Sure. Te- text me your number after after you get off, and and I'll send that to you, and and you can share it with Chase later. I feel like no. I feel like you shouldn't do that. <laughs> okay. Okay. We'll see. <laughs> All right. Uh, I mean, I don't know your number, so clearly can't text you. But Chase, give it my number. I want this list. Okay. We'll do. Will do. Um, mystery person, thank you so much for hopping on and talking about uh, Dewey Cox uh, and some other fun stuff. Like William Defoe's uh, Boss Hog is what we're going to call it. So thank you for uh, making the time. And uh, if I did know who you were, I may say uh-huh. I will see you later. But I unfortunately oh do not. Oh, my God. Yeah, because I don't. So this is it. This is goodbye passing traffic that's it thanks mm-hmm. for having me you guys are awesome have a great rest of your day i'm gonna go work now okay bye bye all right we are back it's just the boys again just the boys um are y'all ready to talk some actual sports yep, yep. It, okay Let's do it so I want to get y'all's perspective on this because I have talked to other NBA people about this this week, and it seems like everyone is looking at the James Harden Houston Rockets NBA mess as like the heads, the, our pets' heads are falling off, like Dumb and Dumber. And I, I don't know. There was a really good blog on Defector today about like the NBA will be fine with James Harden still being a prick, and I think that's more of where i'm at where i don't think it's going to be this just the way that it's talked about where like people got to step in and this is going to just change and this is what uh happens when you give superstars too much power and i'm like i just think 
it'll probably be fine. Like that's that's probably it. Two things can be true. The NBA is not irre- irrevocably screwed, and also just like James Harden's just being a prick. Both can both can be true. Um, is that a fair assessment? Is that how you view it, Andrew? Yeah, I mean here, it's weird. It, 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 we're at a point with, especially with James Harden. There has been more. I, I feel like we do this maybe every two or three years with a guy where a guy isn't happy and he doesn't, you know, he he's he's in a place where oh, I don't know if I want to stay. I don't know if I want to go, you know, or you know, it's like he's saying, "Get me out of here." And, and but like, I, I don't know why this particular case is so why everybody's focused on it. I mean, I get because of the player in, in James Harden's caliber, but we do this every two or three years with a guy who isn't happy. He wants out, you know, he either sulks or, you know, lacks producti- productivity in practices or in workouts to the point where, you know, <laughs> Like we 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 do this all the damn time, and I'm one part that I'm not a fan of. You know, this league and, and NBA Twitter is because what's being portrayed on social media is being blown way out of proportion, and people are trying to fantasy book and trying to, you know, uh, trade machine this whole thing. And I'm just like, guys. What are we doing here? Like, I feel like we're just wasting time and resources and energy on a situation that will eventually figure itself out. Bob, what do you think? I think, like, like, uh, I think Harden was, Everything Harden is doing is like I agree with that, Andrew. Everything Harden is doing is is totally fine, except for the I'm going to go to as many super spreader parties as I can part of it. Like him running around, <laughs> going to little baby's birthday party is probably bad. I mean, the rest of it is like you know what? Look, the the Rockets are screwed. Like there is no way the Rockets are going to compete for a title at any point in the next five years. So yes, James Harden should want to get out of it. Um, the other thing is, I really, really think anyone who hasn't yet should read up read up on Henry Abbott and what he's written on the Fertitta family and the degree to which uh, what's what's a good way of describing them? They're they're from Galveston. I think might be one way of of, of summing it up. Mm. Like. That whole family allegedly is inc- <laughs> has some questionable ties to organized crime, um, including but not limited to the Fertitta brothers, who owned UFC before it got sold to uh, sold off to William Morris Endeavor. Um, like they're sketchy, they're corrupt, and he's 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 over leveraged. So that team is is screwed. So yeah, James Harden should want to get the hell out of it. I totally support that. But do we think that's what it is? Do we think that's his rationale? Okay. Yeah. I think he realizes that he needs... 
Like, he wants to compete for a title. That team won't do it. And so now he wants to leave. That's all fine. That's all extremely normal and fine. Hmm. I don't know. I think, especially with the Kyrie stuff today, which um, we can get into briefly if you guys want, but like, I, I think oh, yeah. oh, I would love to talk about okay. this. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll transition into Kyrie after this because like, I don't think, cause Kyrie, like Harden has gone to the Rockets before, even when Alexander was the owner and asked for a trade. Like he has been mercurial. Yes. He's been mercurial for several years. Like I think he is just, he is on multiple occasions. I forgot who reported that gone to the front office and been like, Hey, either build a container around me or trade me. And I think it is just part of his nature to put pressure on the organization and be like, hey, uh, I want this, this, and this. And they have acquiesced for eight years. And then, um, I don't know, they're kind of out of fr- like superstar guards to pair him with. That's why they had to move on from Westbrook for Paul or for um, Wall. And oh. there's no avenue now. There's no path to get another co-star for him like the co-star is gone he pushed paul away and that's it like there's just no there's no avenue for the rockets to contend again while he's in his prime like his prime is wrapping up here in the next two years they were a contending team that almost knocked off possibly the best team in nba history um and they were a contender for like a real legit contender Mm -hmm. for six years that's all anyone can possibly ask for right that's when teams run their course the fact that Harden wants out is fine. It's yeah. really fun. I think and it's just yeah. the way, and it's the optics, and it's the partying, uh, like you said. It's the optics and the pandemic and going out and doing all this stuff with no mat. Like, yeah. it's the optics. The pandemic stuff is really careless and stupid. That's the only part that I have a problem with. If he wanted to, I don't know, lock himself in his basement and 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 play video games, um, and still stay to the same holdout. It would entirely be fine. So, you know, the optics can, I, you know, not to, <laughs> it, it just doesn't matter to me. And I honestly think that, and, and I agree, I'll give you an hotter take. I think Kyrie Irving is totally fine to tell the media to go screw. Oh, okay. Well, That's this fine. naturally moves us onto Kyrie. Andrew, I know you're chomping at the bit to unleash your Kyrie take. What do you think? Do you agree with Bob's sentiment there? Oh, absolutely. And and here's the thing, like I I, and and Bob, I think you can kind of uh, relate to this. Actually, I know you can probably relate to this. (laughs) There there are players and coaches in the media that either just don't want to talk to the media and whether it's a trust issue or, you know, they just aren't comfortable in front of talking to the media. Um, Some guys handle it different ways. Uh, or they're just quiet in general, and then you know you don't hear anything from them uh, when when they're when they're talking, uh, or you don't really get anything from them when they have quotes. The thing with Kyrie is, I have no problem with it because I'd rather if he doesn't want to talk, fine. Um, and yeah, if, if coaches don't want to talk, that's like I don't have a problem with that um, because. I can get the story somewhere else. I can find another angle. And I think that from what I've seen, writers who've covered teams and have been on beats and have 
been used to one or two guys doing this maybe every year or there's one or two guys on the team that do this all the time. I think we're all just kind of like, yeah, it's fine. But for people to feel like people in the media, quote unquote, who haven't covered a team and who are just kind of like bloggers and and want to be media people who who think that, OK, just because, you know, I have a a platform, quote unquote, um, that, oh, he's he's calling he's he he's trashing the media. No, he's not. He's not trashing the media. He's doing what a lot of people want to do, but they're just obligated to do. Like, I don't have a problem with Kyrie uh, not talking. It's if if you haven't if you haven't figured it out by now, you'll never figure it out with him. Like Kyrie, Kyrie never does himself any favors when it comes to framing the things he wants to say. Like the Instagram post from this morning being like. I will not speak. Judge my odds for itself. It's like, but also okay, calling then. them pawns, like the pawn stuff. It's yeah. like, why are you intentionally adversarial? I, I, I don't. I, I will. I will say that there are some people in the media, some <laughs> very high up in the media. Leave Manesh out of here. No, 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 no. Oh, fuck that. No, I know. Uh, I know who he's talking about. Yeah. But, um, it's like. Like yeah, don't. It's Kyrie's fine to 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 not want to talk. There's there's really very little that Kyrie can say that would change many people's opinion about him, and and in any way offer much more insight into whom he might be as a person. So if he wants to like not participate, it's fine. Ultimately, if someone wanted to write a Kyrie Irving feature, which I think would be freaking fascinating, and did it as they say a write around, which is talk to every single person they can find who knows him and like has played with him and, uh, you know, been employed on various teams with him and did that to write a, to create a portrait of what the hell is up with Kyrie. That's a great story. And if Kyrie doesn't want to participate in that, sure, that's fine. He doesn't have to, but like the rest of it, it, like, you know, I, I mean, a better way that Kyrie could have framed it is like, look, NBA teams are getting $30 million in relief funds this year to help make up for the loss of fans. If Kyrie had done something like, look, until we know that all of that money is going to the people who work in the arenas whose jobs are getting gutted because there aren't going to be any fans, then I'm not talking to the press. That would have been really cool. I'm now... Maybe Kyrie doesn't actually think that. Maybe that's not his agenda. Um, but it kind of suggests like it might be. And and if that is what he wants to say, like, yeah, I'd stand behind that. Um, so, you know, it's fine. Like Kyrie being a huffy weirdo is honestly makes the NBA more fun for me personally. So that's why I support it. And for the most part, there's no harm done by that. Nope, not at all. I do. I real quick before we move on. Um, I do think that the fact the fact that Kyrie says this, people get upset. Um, I am sure, Bob, Bob. I'm sure you've done this. Writing a story on a subject without actually talking to the subject is very difficult, but. It's actually pretty damn easy when you talk yeah, to like, people. Yeah, you do. It's not that hard. I mean, look, sometimes there are there are different – if you're doing a story about a person, there are friendly profiles, and those can be great. Like, 
uh, Marin Fader writes all kinds of profiles with the cooperation of their subject. Sometimes those subjects don't like what the person writes. Sometimes they do. Lee Jenkins, before he got hired by the Clippers, did a great job with very friendly, mostly profiles. There are adversarial profiles that get written, and I've written a few of them. Um, and in that case, you do all the reporting you need to do, talk to whoever you need to talk to, and then you go to the person at the end and be like, you want to respond to this. Like, you, you don't even have to, like, get them to say no at the beginning. You just be like, I'm writing about what you're doing, man. You want to participate in this, that's on you or not. Like, so that's all fine. That's all just part of the job. I mean, there was a, a very, very, very um, incestuous media-centric uh, kerfuffle that got started on Twitter.com about, eh, it could have been a week ago, it could have been a month ago, I honestly can't remember. Um in which some, you know, long form profile writer, I can't remember who, said that if the profile, if the subject of a story is happy with it, it means you fucked up. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I remember seeing something like that. Yeah, it was like, you know, if you follow enough journalists, everyone got the way their two cents in on this one. It was the kind of open ended Twitter topic that allowed everyone to like, just reach back and see how much their farts smell. Um, probably including me. I'm pretty sure I got off a tweet about it. But uh, I don't know if that's true. I think the question is like, you know, there was a celebrity, like the, the celebrity profile is a very difficult kind of thing to write. And I would say most athlete stories are celebrity profiles, more or less. Um, Kathy, uh, Kathy Ackner, who, who, who writes those as well as anyone who's around, um, the thing she said, and this was, I saw her do a talk and, and she said this, it's like the basic thing that I always try to figure out when I'm writing about someone, cause she's written about, you know, Tom Hanks. And there was a Val Kilmer one that she wrote right before the start of quarantine, which is brilliant. Um, and I highly recommend any Val Kilmer fans out there give that a read. Um, and she's written about, you know, Billy Bob Thornton and uh, Bradley Cooper, who, like, showed up at a diner to talk to her and just wouldn't say anything. Like, just sat there and pouted, pretty much. Um, she got to go on, the, on a road with Billy Bob with his country and Western band. And the only condition of the profile was that she couldn't ask him about movies once. And she was like, fine, I don't want to talk about that either. There's one about Gwyneth that's fucking harrowing. And... There are two things that she says. She says the key to writing any celebrity profile is you have to figure out what is the way that the world perceives this famous person. Like, what is the image of this person that is the most common? And then figure out what the celebrity hates about that image. And then what you do is you mine that tension between what the public has decided a famous person is and what that person, the actual person despises about that or fights against that perception or what part of their work goes towards contradicting or refuting that larger perception. And that's the main goal. But like the other thing she says is like with these celebrity profiles, you have to go through wave after wave of handler in order to set this shit up like tons and tons and tons. Like there's one bit in one she wrote about, she wrote a profile of Melissa McCarthy and the PR rep 
suggested they do, you know, those, uh, uh, you know, those, uh, whatchamacallit, uh, they have them in New York, the trap, the, the trapeze school where you, you, you practice, you like trapeze artists teach regular folks how to flatter, like, you know, grab the bars and fly through the air and whatnot. And like the, the PR person is like, you should open your story by saying Melissa McCarthy was practicing trapeze and flying through the air like her career is soaring into the stratosphere. So she put that in the profile and described what the PR person <laughs> told her to do. Which, Damn. but yeah, but like even in a, yeah. And, and the other thing she said is like, because she chimed in, I'm fairly sure during this debate, but what she said when she gave this talk was like, I, you know, that she's always terrified that the person who she spoke to, who, you know, is not her friend and they're not close. She's never going to be friends with this person or even close. What she always does is she tries to remove that artifice of like, I am getting to know this person. No, what she does is she, you know, if it's a movie star, she'll see all their movies. If it's a writer, she'll read everything they've wrote and then document this two hours or hour sometimes or longer of how long she got to spend with this one person that she doesn't know. And she doesn't create an artifice that you're actually, you, the viewer, are getting to know any more about this person. You're just learning what it was like for one reporter to be in a room with them for X amount of time. But the thing she says is, even in moments where she's terrified that she made people look awful, which read the Gwyneth Paltrow profile. I highly recommend reading the profile of Gwyneth and her uh, crystal festooned hoity-toity wellness empire, which is just a giant scam. Even Brad, even the Bradley Cooper one where she wrote about how he wouldn't say anything and was acting like a dick in a diner. Like, they all kind of love it. <laughs> Rarely has, like, the subject said, I hate what you wrote. Or, 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 let, or actually, or at least, said, like, gotten word back through the PR person or said, like, I hate what you did. Fuck you. Like, I think it speaks to the way that our perception of ourselves in the world is supposed to the way that the world perceives us is always kind of a lie. And, and even in the instance of exposing that lie, it can feel like flattery, if that makes any sense at all. Anyway, We've crawled way up into reportery gossip uh, inside baseball, and uh, I'm not sure how to get out. So, what's the next subject? Uh, Kyrie, oh, anyway, I can get out of someone this. Someone should I write a quick... Kyrie Irving profile. Hmm. Someone should. Real, real quick, Bob. Um, I, I will say this: uh, one thing about NBA Twitter and NBA media, just just on the outside, there is a lot of people who don't understand. <laughs> These athletes, they just like the drama, and yeah. and Kyrie Kyrie's smart enough to you know he's not an idiot, smart enough to yeah. see through the bullshit that a lot of people in NBA media put out there. So no, I as much as he kind of annoys me, he's he's absolutely right about that. I yeah. just I think you lose. Kyrie, when you're intentionally adversarial, when you just say things to say things, when you uh, put your... It's one of those things where, like, Bomani was tweeting about this this morning. He's a troll. Yeah. Kyrie's a troll, and that's okay. 
So why do we need to talk to him? So like people getting upset, it's like, do you really, what are you gleaming from conversations with Kyrie at this point? Like he's going to troll you. He is going to give you non-answers. He's going to give you nothing helpful over the course of this season. Like that's not, you're not missing out on anything. And is that a good thing? I don't know. Does it really matter in the grand scheme of things? No, not really. But I do, I don't know. Like I just, I don't really care what Kyrie has to say. I don't really get up in arms about it. I don't think, like you said, he's a troll. And part of it is just that like, people get upset about stupid things and that is a stupid thing to me to get upset about is right. what's happening there and i'm just like eh, eh, i'm gonna go about my friday well, sounds like Kyrie. Yeah. moving on yeah i'm gonna say um i just want to say one more thing uh david aldridge said basically um, i don't know if you guys saw the statement but basically he was like okay Kyrie, you don't want to talk to the media cool when it comes to pr- pr- to postseason awards and stuff and like don't expect to, you know, don't expect yeah, for us to campaign that, for you enough. And I honestly, I don't have a problem that's with that. So petty. I know. I'm like, like, it. I know what he's saying, but it makes it sound like he's like, well, if you'd like to be second team All NBA, play nice or like nice, <laughs> nice second team All NBA award you got there would be a shame <laughs> if something happened to it. See, like, that's the kind of stuff that makes people get pissed off at reporters. And, like, I'm not criticizing Aldridge because he's great. But it does sound like a – like, I understand how someone could read that as a veiled threat, even though I don't think that was the intention at all. He's Andrew. not wrong, but, yeah. you know. Yeah. Andrew, are you ready for our college football minute? Because Bob does not want to talk about college football on this podcast. Hell yes. Yes. I'm going to make some more coffee. You guys uh, you have it. go talk sports as hard as you can. Okay. Perfect. Jason Drew on college <laughs> football. Man. All right. Bob is going to go make his coffee. I think it's iced coffee is what Bob uh, makes, generally speaking. I could be wrong. I could be wrong. Um, Andrew, Ohio State is in. When you saw that Ohio State was going to get into the Big Ten championship game, uh, even when they did not play enough games by the rules instituted by the Big Ten your first reaction was what? Um, this Stevie Wonder, who isn't blind, by the way, saw <laughs> this coming. Um, no, I mean, it, it was – I forgot who wrote the tweet, um, but somebody said this in September. And it was basically – I mean, it was basically true. Uh, you know, the Big Ten wanted to come back for one reason, and that was – Ohio State gave that conference the best shot at getting in the playoff. Um, I guarantee you, dollars to donuts, um, you know, like whatever guarantee you want to put down, if this is Northwestern, Indiana, Wisconsin, basically anybody not named Penn State or Michigan, the conference isn't moving a damn inch to help anybody out. I mean, hell, Wisconsin, you could you could have made the argument Wisconsin was maybe the best team in the Big Ten that first week and looked maybe the best out of anybody. If Wisconsin goes undefeated, the Big Ten isn't moving an inch for them. Um, Gary Barta being in the Big Ten as the uh, Iowa AD and part of the co- and like chairman of the college football playoff committee. That right there should have told you what was coming. Like it was basically like, well, 
if Ohio State can't play, I mean, oops. I mean, it's out of my hands. Oh, by the way, it's in the hands of commissioners. Oh, by the way, I'm a commissioner in that conference. Like, it's it's, it's gaming a terribly put-together system. And basically, I, I mean, Ohio State's going to be in the playoff if they win. I mean, they're going to put up 60 on Northwestern. Everybody knows it. Um, it it's... They should have just made hardline rules. Or if you were, you created this basically. And I'm sorry, I'm taking this minute because it's it. The entire structure of it pisses me off. And I'm not blaming Ohio State. I'm not going to blame Ohio State because you know what? They did nothing wrong. The issue is, you place these hardline parameters. Everybody knows you're probably not going to pass them. Uh, you probably knew you probably weren't going to pass them, yet it's just kind of like, oh, shit, the meal ticket might not even get in the playoff based on our rules. Well, hey, guys, let's call an emergency meeting. Um, who wants to make another 15 to $25 million this year? I, yeah, that's, I think that's college fair. sports in the nutshell. They also didn't need to do it. They shot themselves in the foot in a pandemic. It's like, why would you put this, you have to play a certain amount of games rules when you know that things are going to get complicated very quickly. Like well, I just, it, they did it to themselves. They, they did. And, and that's the thing that pisses me off the most. And once again, I'm not putting blame on Ohio state. I'm not putting blame on Ryan day. They did nothing wrong. The conference got strong armed by president Trump and a bunch of parents. And now like these kids and like God, I feel so bad for these kids. Like I'm, I know they want to play, but I'm sure that it is mentally taxing because you don't know day to day, week to week, whether you get coronavirus or a teammate gets coronavirus. Oh, by the way, you still got to be a student athlete. Oh, and by the way, uh, you've still got to play, uh, in one of the toughest conferences in America. Oh, by the way, uh, no fan support. I mean, there's no fans at the stadium. You're you're playing essentially in front of hundreds of people. I, no, like once again, Ohio State did nothing wrong, but it was this shoddy attempt at trying to get get a season back. This has been and will always be the clusterfuck of all clusterfucks, and. I just, it's so, it's such a terrible system that is exploiting these, you know, and it's like, oh, well, if you, I like college football, but you can actually, you can absolutely call out the system that has created this. And that, that's, that's where I'm at. And it's frustrating to see because we don't even know if Ohio State is going to be ready for the Big Ten championship game. Because there could be another breakout there or Northwestern. So that's my question for you, Chase. If there is, because I was thinking about this today, if there is a, another breakout at Ohio State or Northwestern and there's no Big Ten championship game, can you put Ohio State in the playoff? You know what I say? Hell no. I would be glad that I'm not making that call. Like, I, I would go back and forth on it. I would have to really think about it because like you said like the thing that just sucks is it's not ohio state's fault so i don't 
do I believe that Ohio State's one of the four best teams in college football? Yes. Do I think the games matter? And that's kind of why I was really annoyed by the committee placing Iowa State above Louisiana and Cincinnati. Like, it, did the games just not matter? Louisiana beat them by three scores. And, <laughs> like, what is the point of these group of five schools competing and playing against Power Five schools if they're not going to get rewarded for the on the field result? Um, so, do I think can, Texas can, can A&M I say should, Yeah. Okay, real quick with Iowa State. And I, I'm sorry I wasn't trying to interrupt, but the committee screwed up not ranking Ohio State higher last week. And mm. so they rank them higher this week, which screws up other teams. Sorry, go on. Yeah, I just, <clears throat> I don't know. I think you probably have to let Texas A&M leapfrog Ohio State because I think at that point, but then there are going to be people like, well, Notre Dame lost the ACC title game to Clemson. Why should they get in? And then you're like, well, we, they did they, beat Clemson and uh, they've played more games in Ohio State. We know more about Notre Dame. I don't know. I think it's just going to be, be a mess because the the worst thing that can happen in Ohio State is Florida winning next week. Like if Florida wins next week, because then we got Bama and Florida locked in, and then we got Clemson locked in, and we got Notre Dame locked in. That would literally keep the Big Ten out probably if Florida wins next week, no matter what. If yeah, well, yeah, Florida wins next week. I mean, you could make an argument for Ohio State, but at the same time, you know what I can point to? Uh, November 9th or November seventh. Uh, 2020 i saw the game we all saw the game uh notre dame arguably the the best win out of anybody this season it yeah i just i and this is why if 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 i were to ever be in charge of college football i get rid of preseason preseason rankings i don't start ranking teams across the board in three polls ap coaches and cfp till november because we're 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 giving teams and schools like Georgia credit for essentially existing in the zeitgeist to start 2020. What has Georgia done that essentially warranted them to stay in the top ten all season? Uh, Not a damn thing. That's fair. That's fair. And Ohio State. I mean, people were voting Ohio State in the top five. Kind of, sort of like, well, if they come back, I can at least slide them in there. Like, it, the whole system sucks, and 2020 is just a way to see even more flaws in the system. And I'm just like, some days I wish I was like Bob, and I just decide to just tell college ball to go fuck itself. But I love the sport too damn much, and I'm so stupid. I am sheep. I hate it. We're all sheep. Um, Bob, are you back? Yeah, man. Okay. Are you ready to do your picks of the week? Sure. Okay. What is your uh, pick? Your, what did you read? What did you watch? What do you recommend to the listeners? Uh, I have started watching the the Amazon show The Boys. Okay, I've and heard I good things. Quite, I find it quite delightful. It is uh, for the for the unfamiliar. The premise is that there are superheroes. But they are run by a an evil mega corporation with a media arm, um, not unlike, say, Fox News. Um, and basically, the premise of it kind of gets rid of the subtext with all superhero movies, which is that superheroes are essentially fascist, um, and that if you gave anyone Superman's powers, they would be evil. Um, and so it's it's like they have their own stand-ins for 
like the DC universe, let's say, there's a Superman, there's a clear Wonder Woman, there's a Flash, there's an Aquaman who is very sad and has self-esteem problems um, because he's Aquaman. Um, there, there's all, and like basically everyone in the superhero world is evil or like downright evil or corrupt. Like Superman himself is pretty much a, a Nazi Superman as far as it goes. Um, and they're being fought by a, a ragtag bag of mercenaries who would normally be the sort of ostensible villains in any normal comic book movie. It's not subtle. Let's say that. Season two fi- features a new a superhero who joins the team and her name is Stormfront. So in case you're wondering, <laughs> granted, she's got like, you know, weather powers and stuff, but her name is Stormfront. <laughs> and like, I won't give away any of the other clues as to why they're saying that superheroes are essentially fascistic, but like, it's all right there. At one point, the Superman stand in a character whose name is Homelander and it's just this big old Aryan motherfucker. It's a brilliant performance. Like Superman is pretty much unhinged and he, he will do all the sort of cheesy, like drink your milk boys and girls stuff. But at any moment he is inches away from committing horrible, horrible atrocities and not caring at all. Um, uh, at one point, the Superman atrocity after a after a, a violent incident kills many people bas- recites George W. Bush's speech from the rubble post 9-11 about the world hearing from us. And so you kind of get what the point they're trying to make in. it. And it also stars, you know, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Carl Urban, who you may know who's from. Frank, who's great. Uh, and he's allowed to use his relatively normal speaking voice in this. So he's a sort of scraggly cockney voiced mercenary um so carl urban leads the boys the band of ragtag black ops mercenaries trying to take down the evil superhero cabal um like basically like like what happened if like superheroes were given million dollar signing budgets and signing bonuses and and cars and fame and uh you know reality tv shows would it turn them evil and the answer is yes it would <laughs> quite quickly it's it's extremely good like i said about as subtle as a hammer to the forehead but very enjoyable the boys available on amazon prime that's my pick i like it andrew what about you um this is going to be terrible but honestly check out and go on either twitter or some somewhere on the internet Look at the uh, Disney, the future Disney Plus lineup for like 2021 and beyond. Um, <laughs> no, and, and, and I'm dead serious when I say this. There are going to, you know, we had console wars. We're going to have a true streaming war over the next two to three years. And I truly believe, and you guys may tell me I'm wrong, I truly believe that. The the war between Disney and Warner Brothers when it comes to streaming rights and, of course, uh, HBO Max, uh, they are basically putting all their big features in on HBO Max uh, for maybe a month or two, and then they're going to go to theaters. 
I truly believe that over the next 24 to 36 months, you're going to see both Disney and and Warner Brothers just slug it out. And I fear for you know places like Peacock. I know that Paramount uh, is it Paramount Plus or Paramount whatever the CBS version of, of those is going to be coming out soon or going to be rebranded soon. I fear that they're going to be lost in the shuffle. And so when you check out the Disney lineup for the next, you know, four to five years or three to four years, you're going to be thinking, yep, I don't think Peacock will last. And I, I don't think that, you know, CBS might, the CBS streaming service might, but it's basically going to be Disney versus Warner Brothers, Mickey versus Bugs. Let's go. All right. I like it. And for me, to wrap up here, uh, I watched Misery last night for the first time in a long time. Love Misery. Kathleen Bates, just phenomenal in that movie. I I love it. So Misery, it's on uh, HBO Max. So if you would like to have a delightful evening, um, uh, I'm good on that. Just pop in Misery. The other movie I watched, watched, which isn't as horrific and doesn't involve as much feet smashing, is which is on, I think also, I think it's on HBO X and it may be Amazon Prime, is Big Night, which I cannot recommend highly enough. Mm. Big, Big Night is set in the 1950s and stars Stanley Tucci and Tony Shalhoub as two brothers who are trying to open a successful Italian, real Italian food restaurant in Jersey in the 1950s. And no one likes it because it's, it, it's not a, a, an Italian-American red sauce joint. So they get very angry when he makes her a risotto. Anyway, there's tons of cool cooking scenes and food porn. And like every cool character actor from the mid nineties is in it. And they, what they do is they concoct a plan to save the restaurant by holding a big dinner and invite the Italian singer, Louis Prima to come. And in which case they will get a good write up in the papers and people will come, but it's a great movie. Big night. I like it. I like it. All right. Well, we have to wrap up here, guys. But, uh, Bob, thank you, as always. Good, sir. Uh, Andrew, thank you, as well. Uh, we will be back next Friday, as we are on this very podcast, every week. So the sports reporters will leave it here for that guy up there in the Northeast, Bob Silverman, for Andrew up there in the Northwest, for myself down here in Knoxville, Tennessee. That is all I've got. Guys, you have a great weekend. Alright, we're back on the Chase Thomas Podcast. I am still the aforementioned Chase Thomas. And that guy, over there, wearing the black and gold of the anchor of gold. A, a rival school that I that my school is playing tomorrow that I don't want to watch at all. I have no interest in Seals versus Harrison Bailey. I don't want to do it. I, I want to opt out, but I can't. I have to watch it. It's Tom Stevenson. Tom, good afternoon, sir. How are you? I'm pretty good. Uh, how are you doing? I, I mean, I have to watch Tennessee football tomorrow, so I've been better. Well, I have to watch Vanderbilt football tomorrow, so we're, <laughs> uh, we may be even there. <laughs> but that's sad, right? That's where we're at, is that we're, we're even at this point in the season. Well, at least, at least, yeah, I mean, at least we're getting a new coach. I don't, <laughs> I don't know if y'all have that coming, but, uh, we, we, 
already know we're getting a new coach after this. I mean, hopefully within the next week is signing days next week, but I mean, at least we maybe have something to look forward to next season. And I don't, I don't know what Tennessee is going to do with Pruitt. I, I have no idea. A lot of it. I mean, if they lose to Vanderbilt, we already know what happened to the last coach that lost to Vanderbilt. They were, they were gone. So, I, yeah. Especially this Vanderbilt team, I, I think that's that's it. But there's so many complicated complicated factors that go into uh, Pruitt's future at UT that, like, yeah. I don't know. I'm not even going to pretend to have any sense of what's going to happen there. Um, the decommitments this week are not good. Uh, a lot of four and three stars have decommitted in the last week, so I think that's something to monitor um, as they slip a little bit in recruiting. But um, before we get into the nitty gritty of Vanderbilt football that I want to pick your brain about. Um, what is it like going into an SEC season being a Vanderbilt football fan? Like, do you, are your expectations always adjusted even like during the Franklin years? Like, how do you, how do you approach the season um, as a Vanderbilt Commodore fan? I, I mean, yeah, you, you kind of have to just go into it going like, okay, we know there are, you know, there are probably at least three or four losses on the schedule at a minimum. And that's just if, you know, because even Franklin, I mean, the high water mark, they went five and three in the SEC. But, you know, you just go into it most years. Florida is going to be a loss. Georgia is going to be a loss. Uh, depending on who you draw from the West, that's probably going to be a loss. Um, South Carolina is, you know, it always looks tempting, but then, you know, we've lost 12 in a row to them. So, you know, you just kind of have to adjust your expectations and say, you know, six and six, you're doing pretty well. Um, you know, and it's just about, and, and with Vanderbilt, it's just like, you know, you go in thinking like, well, we can beat Ole Miss, we can beat Kentucky, we can beat in Mizzou. And, you know, in, in recent years, you know, UT, uh, I remember obviously when I was, I was 21 years old the first time in my life that Vanderbilt beat Tennessee. So that did, it used to be something we could say, maybe we can win that game, but you know, you just kind of go in thinking like, Hey, you know, we're fine with going to, you know, a minor bowl game with a six and six record. Yeah. I, um, I don't know. It's something that I think Tennessee fans have to adjust to is like, they want to be Georgia or they want to be, Florida and it's just it's going to be a lot more difficult and I think what you really want to hope for is like the Auburn model which is like seven and five eight and four most years and then you have the magical year every like five where you have like every you get a little lucky everything goes your way and you you make a run um that is yeah. really what you should strive for um uh, but I don't think that's where the expectations are at this moment um right something that I think is interesting about Vanderbilt and people seem to get upset about people who cover the SEC is that they they ask the question of like where does the SEC TV money go at Vanderbilt? Where does the money go, and why does Vanderbilt have um, a facility problem? Or in your estimation, do you think the facility problem is overblown in Nashville? I I don't think that the facility problem is overblown, but I think it's it's much more of a symptom than it is the the real problem. I think it's just symptomatic of the fact that uh, Vanderbilt from you know, the highest levels of the administration uh, hasn't really cared that much about football and the facilities are just a reflection on that. Um, You know, so it's, it's like, I don't, 
I don't, I can't remember the last time I saw a recruit say, you know, I want to go to this place because I really like the locker room. It's just like, it's, it, it show, tells you a lot about what, how important football is on campus. And that's, that I think is the real problem. You know, when, I, I mean, even when, even when I went there, the student section was pretty, uh, attendance was pretty sparse. And now it's, you know, it's even worse than that, especially for the, uh, the non-conference games. And, you know, now you're just, I mean, it's embarrassing to, you know, to see the crowd on TV and it's like, you know, 80% Georgia fans when they played at Vanderbilt last year. Uh, I, I mean, it's just, it, it's just such a symptom of what the real problem is. They just, and fortunately I think the new chancellor is going to, is going to change a few things in that respect, but you know, a, a lot of fans are just like, well, we'll believe it when we see it. What do you think they're going to change? What are some things that you have a hunch that are in, in motion? Well, I don't know about anything specific in motion. I mean, other than, you know, I, I think that there were a lot of people who, who were actually surprised that they, that they fired Derek Mason. I think a lot of people thought they weren't going to, weren't actually going to do that, even with the team being, you know, Oh, and eight. And, uh, then they go on the road to Missouri and lose 41 to nothing. And that's, you know, when they just decided to pull the trigger. But I think that, I, I mean, I don't think they just made that decision based on one game, but I, I still think a lot of people were, uh, were really surprised that they went out on a limb and did that. And, uh, you know, that's, that, that's got a, got some people thinking that maybe we're going to, uh, maybe something's really are going to change, but then again, I mean, just firing a coach who's in year seven and he's oh and eight is just like the bare minimum uh, commitment to the program. I still feel bad though because Derek Mason is so likable. He he's such a likable coach, right? Yeah, I mean, he's likable, but then you know, at, the easiest way to make it look to fans like you don't know what you're doing is to be bad at clock management. Mm-hmm. I, that's, I, well, I, I think like that's, that's just such the, such an obvious thing that, you know, if you're miss if you're missing that, the fans are going to go like, well, you know, you don't really know what you're doing here. That's, that's fair. Um, are you going to miss the, the vest at all as a new vest guy myself? Um, are you going to miss the vest? Uh, yeah, that, yeah, I, I will miss the vest. Yeah. Um, do you like the current AD, because this will be her first football hire. Um, cause she hired Jerry Stackhouse, right? Stackhouse did she not. Did not. Her. That oh, was, so Stackhouse came no, that, before that, her. Yeah. Stackhouse was Malcolm Turner's hire. And then okay. he was let go in February and can't destroy Lee. This will be, um, and it, this will be her first major hire, I believe. So does she have more sway than the chancellor or do you think this will ultimately fall on the chancellor and the boosters? that's that's a really good question and i'll probably i probably won't know the answer to that until i see who they've gone out and hired so let's get into it who do you think they're really like who is the realistic hire who is your favorite potential hire and who do you think will tell you more about like okay clearly the ad has more sway or who will tell you more that like the chancellor and boosters have more sway uh 
Well, I think uh, probably the leader in the clubhouse right now is Clark Lee, uh, the defensive coordinator at Notre Dame. Uh, he's going to be, he, he's an alum, which, you know, explains why he would be interested in the job. But, um, you know, obviously the defensive coordinator for a playoff team, uh, you know, you you hope that's a good hire. Now, obviously, uh, from y'all's experience, you know that sometimes the DC on a really good team may not be head coaching material. And right. uh, we, we went through that with Derek Mason too. But I think what, you know, kind of the, the telling thing for me is that, uh, you know, Stanford fans, when we hired Mason, were just kind of like, yeah, whatever. And whereas Notre Dame fans, I've at least the ones I've seen uh, talking online are like, no, we really don't want to lose Clark Lee. Um, I think the other name that's getting tossed around is Will Healy from Charlotte. That's a, now that's a name that I don't like, but uh, you know, he's a, well, let's start with the fact that he has a losing record as a head coach. Well, Derek Dooley worked (laughs) out for us. So I think going down that road, it worked out pretty well. Yeah. Woody Weidenhofer worked out really well for us. Uh, And uh, I mean, now you'll, you'll hear like, well, he wouldn't have a losing record if he hadn't gone 0 and 11 his first year at Austin P. But you know he's still kind of green. I don't. But you know a lot of people in the media like that hire for Vanderbilt. Um, and I think the connection there is that his uncle played at Vanderbilt a uh, pretty long time ago. Uh, I, I think like the there there have been there hasn't really been much coming out. Now I think. Uh, the other name that we were hearing earlier in the week is Jamie Chadwell, but that's kind of died down. I don't, uh, I don't know what the, uh, you know, what the, uh, what happened there. I do know that he named his son after Heath Schuler, which, mm. you know, maybe that, <laughs> maybe that should tell you where, uh, where he might be a candidate of it sometime down the road. But, uh, I, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know. It's hard to get a read on, uh, you know, because obviously the booster club's going to like Clark Lee. I heard some of them like Healy, um, but I don't, I, I don't know what, I don't know what who the AD would hire because we haven't seen her uh, make a hire before, so it, that'll be hard to figure out. Mm. I am um, I, I am very fascinated to see what happens. And it's interesting that you didn't mention Jeff Fisher because that was the one who popped in and you're like, he's interested. And you're like, what? Because it feels like forever ago that he was just always linked to the USC job and everything. But now yeah. being a Nashville guy and all that, and obviously coaching the Titans forever, um, the best case scenario is like the, the CEO type, right? Like he has the Herm Edwards effect that he builds out this super staff around him and gets some excitement there and pushes the football program to get a lot more money. Um, would that be a disaster hire for you? Uh, I, I, that, now when you put it in those terms, I don't know that it would be a disaster, but I think, you know, the, obviously that would just be a short term fix. Cause he's, I think he's 62 years old, which so is 20 younger, it, 20 years younger than Mac Brown. I think. Hey, that's, that's true. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think if he were there, he, probably wouldn't be there more than a few years. Um, I mean, maybe the boosters would, you know, would like him and they'd want to donate, but I don't, I don't know how that would work out. I mean, if, 
he he wasn't even that good his last few years in the NFL. But then, mm-hmm. you know, I guess Herm Edwards, you just look at that and say, well, maybe he could do that for us. Can I give you my favorite? Like, I, I this guy cannot work at a power like a major Power Five program, but he could probably instill excitement and really be good for y'all in this if he took a step down to kind of like reassess his career. Who's that? Tom Herman. Once he gets the axe from Texas, like you scoop in and nab Tom Herman in a fertile recruiting ground, and uh, you know, see what happens. Cheat your way yeah. back to respectability. Like I, I think that is a okay path. Yeah, I, I, I mean, that would be, and I, I had the same thought about like, well, what if you know, what if Virginia Tech gives Justin Fuente the axe? Yeah, because I thought, I thought that would be one where, well. I don't know why it didn't work out at, at Fatek though, but um, you know I think that Vanderbilt could do a lot worse than a guy that wanted Memphis. I would agree. I would not think that'd be a disaster, but it seems like he's always got his eyes wandering, so I don't think he'd be a long-term right. fit there. Um, is Ken Seals legit? Yes or no? Yes. Okay. Yes, that's yeah. <laughs> what have you seen from him uh, this year to believe I, in Seals going forward? I, I think like the he's surprisingly advanced for a true freshman. Um you know, a lot of a lot of true freshman quarterbacks that come in and start, you know, you can see like the raw tools, but you know, they're just the accuracy isn't there or you know, they're making bad reads and that really hasn't been the case with, with Ken Seals this season. Um so yeah, I, I mean Supposedly, one thing that I, one thing that's come out is that a lot of the reason for the interest in the Vanderbilt head coaching job is that you'll get to coach Ken Seals for three years. Uh, so that's, um, you know, a lot of coaches just look at that and say, like, I can do something with this. Uh, it would be now the situation, honestly, would be similar to, you know, when Bobby Johnson came in. Mm. Jefferson Pilot Sports legend, Bobby Johnson. Yeah, he had a really bad team his first couple of years, but he had Jay Cutler as his quarterback. Mm. Uh, I'm not saying Seals is Jay Cutler, but it's kind of the same situation for a first-year coach. I like that. And I I think that's something that Tennessee fans have overlooked when they're like they're talking about the Harrison ba- Bailey stuff and I'm just like I, he he looks okay, but it's a lot of checkdowns. They're not really letting him do a whole lot. Um he's missing some throws. Obviously the timing's not there. He hasn't had the time with his receivers and stuff like that. But like I I don't know if they know that like Ken Seals has looked a lot better as a true freshman. So they're like, Oh, we don't we don't want to throw him to the wolves and all this other stuff and we gotta protect Bailey and I'm like there's a true freshman quarterback playing behind a way worse situation in a way tougher uh, situation as a whole and thriving. Like, Ken Teal's been good. I don't know if you guys have been watching, but, like, he's been good, and they threw him out there and threw him to the Wolves, and he's been okay. Um, it doesn't always go like that, but Seals is proving that, like, you can you can do that from time to time, and you'll find uh, you'll find out that you have somebody there. Like, he, is, he seems like he's going to be your, like, three- to four-year starter, like you said. Yeah, and that's—I mean—that's kind of how it works. At uh, you know, at Vandy is you know, it's not unusual for you know, it's not unusual for Vandy to start a freshman because you know there's nobody better than them, and then you know they're not going to bring in anybody coming up behind you. So yeah, I'd say I mean he's going to be a four-year starter, um, if not five years with the weird eligibility rules. 
uh, yeah. And it, it, one thing I am looking forward to on Saturday, um, now that, now that it sounds like the game's going to be on, uh, I was a little concerned about that earlier in the week, but it sounds like Vandy's going to play even without the 53, uh, you know, it sounds like w- with Todd Fitch being the interim, um, you know, there have been a lot of people who have thought over the years that Derek Mason kind of puts the reins on his offensive coordinators and doesn't let them uh, do what they want. And I think we're about to see if, uh, you know, Todd Fitch might be about to just let Ken Seals, his, you know, <laughs> let Ken Seals do his thing because, you know, well, he's an interim coach, so why not? Absolutely. I, I'm here for it. Um your best guess, if you had to really make a strong prediction as to who the next coach of Vanderbilt is in the next week, who would you guess? I, I still think Clark Lee is the, I mean, he's the leader in the clubhouse right now. I think that's, it, it, it just makes so much sense. Um, I think that's, I think that's who they're going to hire, but don't, you know, I, I won't be surprised if it's someone else, but it's, um, that would be my prediction. I think they're going to go somebody else. I don't think school... It seems like schools always ping-pong these hires, like Jeremy Pruitt from Butch Jones. Butch Jones was a head coach for a long time before he got the job, and then they went to the, the up-and-coming DC, the Saban guy. And then you're going to go back, like, if they fire Pruitt, guess what? They're targeting Hugh Freeze, Will Healy, guys like that, who or Jamie Chadwell, coaches now, not coordinators. Like, Vanderbilt just went through the coordinator thing with... Um, Derek Mason. Like, I don't think they're going to hire back-to-back DCs unproven head coach commodities. Like, if I had to guess, I think they're going to hire a head coach, current head coach. So, is yeah. it Will Healy or is it Jeff Fisher? I would actually lean towards that. Yeah, I, I could see that. But then, you know, it, the guy before Derek Mason was James Franklin, who mm-hmm. was also a first-time head coach. Yeah. Uh, I, don't, I don't think they've forgotten that. Um but I wouldn't be surprised they go for someone with head coaching experience. But the problem when you're Vanderbilt is that when you look at the guys who have head coaching experience and who are willing to take the job, is it gonna is it really gonna be better than just bringing in a coordinator? I don't know. Uh, the last the last guy Vanderbilt hired uh, who had Division One head coaching experience. Uh, was Woody Weidenhofer back in the 90s, and he'd won 12 games in four years at his previous job. Uh, so that's the kind of, typically that's what you're looking at if you're hiring a guy with head coaching experience. Uh, or it's going to be a guy like Will Healy where you're just taking a shot in the dark on a guy who's you know 35 years old and he's been a Division One head coach for two years and He's one, I think, I think he's like nine and nine at Charlotte. So nine and 10, uh, sir, nine and 10. Oh, you're right. When I, when I wrote that post, that was before he went and lost to Western Kentucky. Yeah. Losing uh, record. Sorry. Will Healy. We got to get it right. Yeah. There you go. Uh, so that's, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, I could see them going either direction. Um, I could see them you know, maybe hiring somebody whose name isn't being talked about too. Cause you know, every name that that's they've said publicly is a name that, you know, you can see some flaws with and you know, you're, you're not going to go hire a proven commodity here. Um, and if you do, 
I mean, maybe the chancellor should, <laughs> maybe we should build statues of the chancellor if we, or if he's going to go out and hire a proven commodity. Got there you know. go. There you go. All right. Well, this has been great. I appreciate you making the time, man. Um, we can check out all your work at anchorofgold.com, a very good Vanderbilt website that people should go visit. Yep. Um, Tom, I would suggest that, uh, you know, I feel weird. I'm never going to root against Tennessee, but like putting Jeremy Pruitt out to pasture tomorrow would not be the uh, the worst thing. So um, I don't know. I feel very conflicted heading into tomorrow's game. Well, I, I would say that any coach that loses to this Vanderbilt team with, I think, something like 45 scholarship players available probably deserves to get fired. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. There you go. You heard it here yeah. first, folks. Um, no excuse um, for Jeremy Pruitt's group not to beat uh, Vanderbilt tomorrow. So either way, sir, let's hope for a fun game. Um, I'm not going to say good luck tomorrow, as conflicting as it might be. But, Tom, this was a lot of fun. Thank you for the time, and uh, have a great yeah, weekend, thank sir. Thank you. All right, you too. Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.